Hello and welcome to Interpreting India. The times we live in are being defined by a deadly pandemic, precarious geopolitical relations, economic crisis and a rapidly evolving technological landscape. This season, we at Carnegie India are examining many of the challenges and opportunities that India will confront in the coming decade. I'm your host, Suresh Rai, and this week we're diving deep into the health of India's financial system. By early 2021, India's economy was making a better than expected recovery. Growth in the third quarter seemed to suggest that India was out of the recession, and as we learned later, the fourth quarter had also registered an expansion. But the second wave has halted this recovery with lockdowns creating supply side challenges and the ferocity and the scale of the wave creating a demand shock. As a consequence, the recovery seems temporarily stalled and uncertainty seems to have increased. Against this backdrop, in this episode of Interpreting India, we evaluate the health of India's financial sector. How has the pandemic affected the financial system so far? What could be the impact of the second wave? What policy measures can be taken to address some of the problems? And finally, what does the health of the financial system mean for the broader economy? In this episode of Interpreting India, we are joined by Professor Rajeshwari Sengupta. Dr. Sengupta is an assistant professor of economics at Indira Gandhi Institute of Development Research in Mumbai, India. In the past, she has held research positions at IFMR, Reserve Bank of India, IMF, and the World Bank. She was a member of the Research Secretariat for the Bankruptcy Law Reforms Committee, BLRC, that recommended the Insolvency and Bankruptcy Code for India. Her research focuses on policy-relevant macro-financial issues of emerging market economies in general, and India in particular, in the fields of international finance, open economic macroeconomics, monetary policy, financial markets, and regulations. Hi, Rajeshwari. Welcome to Interpreting India. Delighted to have you with us today. Thank you so much, Suyash. Always a pleasure to talk to you. So, Rajeshwari, uh, let's start with uh, setting a baseline for this conversation. So, it seems to me that all was not well with the financial system even before the pandemic. Uh, we remember that Yes Bank had failed in March 2020. Uh, in recent years, some of the large NBFCs had also failed. Uh, so, just to set the baseline, uh, can you tell us about the state of the financial system as on March 2020? Sure. So, uh, and I think it's a very, very important question because the the preconditions of the economy and especially the financial sector matter a lot in order to understand how the pandemic is impacting the economy and again, particularly the financial sector. So as uh, we sort of know already by now that before the pandemic hit us, the financial sector was severely strained. And some of the main elements of this crisis, which has been brewing for a long time, was, of course, the most important part of it, which was the twin balance sheet crisis, which was the balance sheet stress both in the banking sector and in the non-financial firms, uh, spanning almost a decade, if we say that it started around 2010-11. And when the the banking sector was struggling with the non-performing assets uh, as they were exposed in 2015 after RBI did its asset quality review, the peak uh, NPA was uh, almost around 11% of total advances, which was very, very high. And 90% of this was accounted for by the public sector banks, which were particularly stressed in this crisis. And of course, uh, uh, the government did put in almost, I think, rupees 3 trillion or so into recapitalization, but it was not nearly adequate uh, because the banks, uh, the hole in the bank's balance sheet was much larger. And what RBI and the government of India did from 2015 onwards when when the NPAs got exposed was that they took a series of actions to sort of address the problem. 
But many of these actions also tantamount to, to, to uh, penalizing the bank. So they put the weakest banks into what was called the prompt corrective action framework, which prevented the banks from expanding their books. Investigative agencies, the CBI and the CBC, initiated investigations. Uh, senior officials of the banks uh, were put in jail. Uh, and also then the RBI directed the banks to, to take the largest cases to the Insolvency and Bankruptcy Code uh, in 2017. Uh, and, and the banks were forced to accept large haircuts even when they didn't have enough capital. So the banks went through a really tough time starting 2015 onwards. And, and of course, on the other side of the crisis, it's a twin balance sheet crisis. The other side of the crisis was the non-financial firms were severely stressed. And once the banking sector started undergoing the problem, they stopped lending. And on the other side, the firms, uh, the there was complete stagnation of investment demand because the firms were struggling to resolve their balance sheet stress. So there was neither a credit demand nor a credit supply, both from the demand and the supply side it plummeted. In fact, if you look at some numbers, uh, the, the, the total share of banks, you know, banks have been the biggest provider of, of credit in the country. Uh, uh, the, the total share of banks in commercial credit peaked at around roughly 60, 62% in 2014. It was just before the AQR. And then it was down to 35% or less by 2018. So in just four or five years, the, the, the banks completely uh, withdrew from the commercial credit space. Now, what happened was that this space was then taken over by the NBFCs and the bond market because they stepped in in a big way, mutual funds. Also, mutual funds got a lot of liquidity because of demonetization, you know, all the deposits coming into the system. And the NBFCs and the bond market stepped in in a big way. So they started lending a lot. But once again, as we know, that came to an end too in 2018 when infrastructure leasing and financial services, the big NBFC ILF is defaulted. And that sent shockwaves through the bond market and the mutual funds. Credit spread skyrocketed, cost of borrowing for the NBFCs went up significantly, and banks were forced basically by the RBI to lend to the NBFCs, which is when we saw a little bit of an uptick in banks' share of commercial credit. But that didn't really mean that banks were lending to uh, investment to firms per se. And then, of course, as you mentioned, that we had some of these individual episodes of problems. We had Yes Bank, we had Punjab National Bank, a big scam. We had DHFL uh, defaulting. We had recently Franklin Templeton mutual fund problem. So all of these problems basically meant that for a long period of time, the financial sector was almost in a systemic crisis. And by any definition of systemic crisis, I think this would qualify as one. Except the problem in India is that because such a large portion of the financial sector, especially banks, is owned by the government, you know, we don't ever see a bank failing. We don't ever see a bank run. So in a conventional definition, we did not have a banking crisis. But for from all parameters, it was a really bad systemic banking crisis. And also because of the NBFC and bond market problems, it became a systemic system level financial crisis. So this was the situation when India got hit by the pandemic. Um, and although by March 2020, the NBFC sector had recovered to some extent because banks had been lending quite a bit to them, there had emerged a distinction. You had the strong AAA rated NBFCs on one hand and the really weak ones who could not access credit and only the big ones could access credit. So that had become a division. Bond market was, of course, struggling because we were reeling from the Yes Bank problem, 81 bonds and all of that. And the banking sector still was in this very heightened risk aversion mode because they had faced a lot of problems over the last few years. So this was the scenario in which India got hit by the pandemic. Uh, and of course, um, 
growth-wise, we were doing very badly because GDP growth was down to around 4%. So clearly, it was not a very good scenario to be hit by a pandemic, which is like the biggest shock in a century. Yeah, so the, thank you for this. This actually sets the baseline quite nicely. But just to follow up on this, that uh, as you said, that in some ways, the NBFCs had uh, recovered to some extent. But as we know that the resolutions of some of the failed NBFCs like NFS were still underway. And the bank uh, balance sheet repairing process was still going on because if you see the trend line of NPAs in banks, there had been a steady decline, but it's a still a fairly high level of NPAs before the crisis hit. So first, let's talk about how the resolution process or the uh, process of solving these problems may have been affected by the fact that the pandemic hit the Indian economy. Right. So when we think of resolution, let's let's look at it in 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 the in the from the perspective of two bins. So one is the resolution of financial firms, and then one is the resolution of non-financial firms. Because what happened in the last 10 years of crisis is that both the sectors got very badly affected. When it comes to the non-financial firms, of course, till 2016, we were uh, depending upon all kinds of restructuring schemes initiated by the RBI, we had the CDR, SDR, et cetera, but it was not really working very well, as we all know by now. And then, of course, the insolvency in the bankruptcy code, which was India's first comprehensive insolvency law, that was enacted in 2016. It was implemented. And by 2017, we saw RBI was directing the banks to take the 40 large, uh, 40 largest NP accounts into the IBC. And that process began from 2017 onwards. Of course, we know by now that between 2017 and 2020, IBC itself struggled quite a bit for multiple reasons. Many of the cases coming to IBC were old legacy cases where already a lot of asset depreciation happened. So there was not much value to be recovered. Also, many of these cases, the 40 cases were the largest cases. So obviously, the, the ecosystem was not really well developed to deal with the pressure of these very large cases, judicial problems, administrative problems, etc. And in general, I guess the mindset in the economy was not really prepared to deal with a law like the IBC, where there is so much of importance on creditor rights. We've, we've, so far, we have just been used with debtor rights, and this was just a complete shift of creditor rights. So the IBC itself was struggling, and there were some government amendments that were brought in, uh, amendments to the law brought in by the government, Section 29, etc., which one can debate. But this was also like another way of saying that uh, there were many, many changes happening in the IBC forum itself in a very short span of time of three years. And we didn't see a whole lot of recovery, a whole lot of resolution take place. And then when the pandemic hit, uh, what the government decided was to suspend the IBC. And this was in line with what several other countries around the world did, that when you are hit by such a massive shock, and there is so much of uncertainty, you don't know how this health crisis is going to pan out, you don't want to take firms into a bankruptcy court at that point of time, because you just want to give firms some breather time. So the government suspended the IBC for the first six months and then extended it to one year. So we didn't see any kind of fresh resolution in the last one year. Everything was held in abeyance, kept in abeyance. And also on top of that, what happened was that the RBI offered a loan moratorium to all the firms which had been affected by the pandemic. And once the moratorium ended, RBI offered a restructuring scheme. So things sort of shifted from the IBC formal resolution system led by the NCLT, et cetera, towards more towards the RBI and then the government uh, suspending IBC, then the RBI doing restructuring scheme, and then the Supreme Court announced that banks should not be disclosing NPA. 
So we sort of went into this opaque environment where we didn't really know for one year what was happening, which account was NPA because banks were not disclosing NPAs. Some firms we know took up restructuring, but not a whole lot. And many firms, I believe, benefited from the loan moratorium. So the one year was sort of shrouded in some kind of an opacity. We don't really know the extent of stress of the last one year. RBI in his financial stability report that came out in Jan of this year said that the NPA was around 7.5% in September 2020. It has come down from the peak. Uh, but then the projection was that by September of this year, the NPA can go up to anything between 13 to 15%, which is really, really steep. So resolution, I don't think has really happened since the pandemic has started. Now, I think the IBC is back in action. And, but of course, there are administrative judicial problems. And we're probably going to see some resolution happen, but not, not even probably this year, maybe next year, because RBI has extended the restructuring scheme. And I think many firms will just go for that because that gives them a more breather space than IBC. So I think that resolution of non-financial firms is, is sort of struggling because IBC has its own problems. But one thing that has happened as a result of IBC is that it has created a threat perception. So the law and the, the infrastructure itself may not be working very well. There's a lot of room for improvement. But IBC has created, has changed the incentives of the firms and the promoters and also of the creditors. So there is a threat perception. There is a deterrence effect uh, that I know that if I go to IBC, I'm going to lose control of my firm and I may not be even allowed to bid for my firm. So then firms are doing a lot of M&As. They are they're inviting private equity. So they are doing a lot of off the court, off IBC transactions and resolutions which is not bad either. I mean, end of the day, we just want firms to sort themselves out. And I think quite a bit of that is happening. So that's on the non-financial firms. And then on the, and of course, mind you, these are mostly large firms or big firms. On the MSMEs, I think the situation is still not as good. Although RBI has now extended restructuring scheme to really small firms as well. And we have to see how that goes. On the financial firms, of course, we had many financial firms struggling as we have just been discussing. The RBI initiated uh, some kind of a resolution. So we saw RBI doing, you know, there was some equity uh, money infusion into Yes Bank. Uh, then there was Lakshmi, Lakshmi Vilas Bank, which, which was basically uh, going to be merged with the DBS, the India subsidiary of DBS. Then DHFL had some kind of an IBC kind of resolution. ILFS, of course, is still a mess. But RBI, we saw the central bank sort of step in and started doing uh, some resolution, some restructuring of these firms, albeit in a discretionary and unpredictable manner. So it's something is better than nothing. So we did see some resolution of the financial firms happening. But because we don't have, and as you know very well, we don't have the FRDI bill uh, and we don't have a resolution corporation, it's not happening in a systematic manner as might happen for non-financial firms. Right? So the central bank is doing something, but there are inconsistencies. We generate its own risk. Uh, but again, Something is better than nothing uh, in the current scenario. Yeah. So, uh, if I'm hearing you right, uh, what you seem to be saying is that we had a decade-old balance sheet crisis, and which was being resolved gradually within our system. A new law, IBC, was in place. Some ad hoc uh, resolutions were happening of financial firms also, and these seem to have been stalled substantially by the pandemic, the and the policy responses to the pandemic. And what we know generally from experience of bankruptcies is that if there's uh, more time, as more time elapses, the re recoveries actually fall because the values 
uh, I mean, go down over time of the assets that are supposed to be resolved. So possibly the legacy issues that we inherited before the pandemic uh, came were, would have been even exacerbated because of the crisis. Now coming to what happened because of the crisis. So let's talk about the period between April 2020 and March 2021. This is before the uh, second wave actually hit us in a big, big way. Uh, so in this 12 months, I know you said that there's opacity about what may have happened. It's not, uh, we don't have full data because of the moratorium, because of the uh, restrictions on classification of bad, bad, bad loans. But what do you think may have happened, especially from the point of view of credit risk for NBFCs, banks, bonds, in terms of what, what, what could have been the pathways of impact and what would be, what are we likely to see because of this last one year of uh, being in three months of lockdown, two quarters of recession and so on? Right. So what, so let's, let's go uh, one by one. So let's talk of the banks and then we talk of NBFCs, bond market and maybe some firms, et cetera. So for the, the banking sector, as, as we've been discussing that because by the time the pandemic hit, the banking sector was already reeling under very severe risk aversion and they were, the credit uh, growth had, had, had gone down significantly. When the pandemic hit and the lockdown was announced, as you can imagine, the risk aversion, I mean, banks have just petrified, right? So risk aversion went to the next level. And we saw credit growth over the last one year averaging around 5 to 6%. I think currently it's 5.5%. So this kind of credit growth of 5 to 6% is at a seven-decade low. So that gives you an idea of how bad the situation is on the bank credit landscape. And this is nominal, right? This is nominal. This is nominal, not adjusting for inflation. So as you can imagine, banks being the biggest provider of credit and, and the biggest financial, the most important financial intermediary in the economy, if this is the situation in the banking sector, that says a lot about what's happening in the general credit landscape and outside in the real economy. So when the, when, the, when, the, when the lockdown was was announced and then the loan moratorium was announced for six months, uh, banks just basically withdrew. I mean, you know, there was also, you have to remind you have to keep in mind that there was no demand for credit either. I mean, it's not that at that time, any firm would want to expand capacity because as a result of the last several years of slowdown in growth and investment and demand, what had happened was that firms also had excess capacity. So they had spare capacity on one hand. There was no demand for credit. Banks were reluctant to lend. So nothing much was really happening on the credit landscape. And then, of course, RBI announces the restructuring. This time, the restructuring scheme that was announced was much more strict compared to the last few years. You know, it's not like the CDR and the SDR, where banks can just get away by evergreening and round-tripping and hiding the bad loans. RBI uh, came out much more strict with the framework, et cetera. And my sense is not many firms went, again, we don't really have a lot of data on this, but not many firms went for the restructuring. And the reason is that, now let's come to the firms, what happened was that the loan moratorium really helped some of the firms which were stressed. Now, here we have to make a distinction between the large firms and the others. The large firms have been deleveraging over the last few years because of the twin balance sheet crisis. They had withdrawn from the investment space. They were not taking much of a bank credit. And in fact, they were deleveraging because they just wanted to clean up the balance sheet and shore up capital. When the lockdown was announced, primarily everybody went into cash conservation mode. The whole idea was you just shore up capital, shore up your balance sheet. So the large firms were, were doing deleveraging, and they did fairly well, actually, despite the pandemic, because we did see the profits of these firms went up, because the costs perhaps came down, although the revenues didn't go up as much. So they, they fared much better. Now, on the other side, the non, uh, the, all the other firms, the MSMEs, et cetera, they benefited from the loan, loan moratorium, and then 
you know, you have to remember that because the first wave did not hit us that bad, the economy started unlocking quite early on. So we sort of went back into the spending mode. The revival of the pent-up demand started happening much early on. And the sense was that the things are over, you know, as we were discussing before we started recording, that the sense was that India has, has emerged a victorious winner from this pandemic and all will be well. So therefore, the MSMEs and the other firms, they, they benefited from the loan moratorium. They had showed up cash. And then as demand started coming back, you know, of course, there was job, there were some job losses and they trimmed maybe whatever was, whatever they could trim in terms of business size, but they still fared okay. They didn't see a whole lot of firms applying for the restructuring in RBA office. So they fared okay because they had some ammunition uh, with the cash showing up and they had some ammunition basically job losses firing people. So they somehow managed to stay afloat. And of course, IBC was not there. So they were not also hauled into a bankruptcy court. So that was the situation, of course, before everything changed when the second wave hit us. On the NBFCs, once again, after the ILFS crisis, because the banks have been lending to them quite a bit, uh, and the large NBFCs, the AAA rated ones, were still able to issue bonds in the bond market. By March 2020, credit spreads had come down. Of course, then it went up again when the lockdown was announced. But again, by June and July, credit spreads sort of came down again. So things became slightly better in the bond market for the large NBFCs. They were able to raise credit. But nobody was really in a big lending, expanding mood, you know, because there was no demand for credit. So everything was sort of going in a, in a very small, short, slow pace. Uh, the, the smaller NBFCs were already struggling earlier. They continued to struggle, no access to credit. But then again, their entire business size had shrunk because they were not even lending to a whole lot of people. Because entire mode in the economy was you're coming back from a lockdown. It's all just a revival of pent-up demand. It's not like everybody's going gung-ho and, and doing expansion of investment capacity. No, nothing of that sort happened. But, but firms sort of stayed afloat. I mean, there was the moratorium, the restructuring, the shoring up of cash. Uh, laying down some employees, laying off some employees, all of these measures sort of helped them go through the first year of the pandemic. It wasn't, I mean, of course, the growth numbers were terrible because we were in a lockdown. But other than that, the recovery also happened quite well. But of course, uh, I guess that was only till March 2021. So now, uh, before we get on to the potential possible impact of uh, the second wave, let's talk about this the fact that the second wave came, right? Because uh, our first, the first wave in India had peaked in September and then October, November, December, Jan, Feb uh, passed and the second wave didn't come. And many people, including people in government and private sector, people like us, many of us are operating with the assumption that maybe the second wave will not come or it may come and it may, may not be as ferocious as it turned out to be. So that would change something about the way people think about the future, right? Because uh, the sense of uncertainty might have gone up. And how does that impact the financial system? You know, Because finance is the business of risk. And if you can't distinguish between risk and uncertainty, then it's very difficult to take decisions about investment, about future uh, in, in the financial system. So just kind of, if you can meditate a little bit on this question of how this may have may impact the financial system. Right. And, uh, and you put it very well that, you know, I mean, if finance cannot distinguish between risk and uncertainty, then, of course, we have a serious problem. And as we have been discussing that because the preconditions matter so much, we already had a financial sector steeped in risk aversion. They were already not uh, enthusiastic about taking risk, nor was the private corporate sector enthusiastic about taking risk because they were not expanding capacity. So in that environment, we had a lockdown in the first wave. 
the lockdown gets released and everybody has a sense that things are getting better, they start spending. So households at first started saving and they start spending. And uh, we see a little bit of recovery in the credit demand because uh, also the government did a lot of credit guarantee scheme announcements. So MSMEs started getting some credit. In fact, in the last one year, the credit growth to MSMEs was quite impressive because of the guarantee schemes. So we see a little bit of recovery, the economy recovers, and you know there is a bit of an improvement in consumer confidence, business confidence, et cetera. And then you get hit by this completely unexpected, unprecedented second wave, which wreaked havoc throughout the country, right? Now, from the perspective of the financial sector, very important change that has happened over the last few years when the banking sector was going through this crisis was that there has been a shift in the portfolio of lending in the banking sector. It has shifted from commercial credit to consumer credit. So while public sector banks had completely stopped lending, the private sector banks were lending a lot to the retail sector. Right? So retail lending had, take, had uh, picked up significantly. What happened in the second wave was that this retail sector, the consumers got affected the most. People like you and I got affected the most, right? So when that happened, of course, the household balance sheets got damaged because we have medical expenses, there have already been some job losses, income losses, there's uncertainty, very, very high uncertainty going forward. So of course, households are, are not spending, their balance sheets have been damaged, and they have taken loans from the banking sector over the last few years, and maybe even over the last one year. So the retail sector being hit by the second wave, I think, is a very, very serious problem. Because, you know, in some sense, it is easier to resolve damaged balance sheets of the corporate sector, because you still have an IBC, a restructuring scheme of RBI, etc., but damaging for repairing the damaged balance sheets of the household sector is very, very difficult because, of course, we don't have a personal insolvency law. RBI has announced some restructuring for loan uh, uh, individual borrowers who are borrowed business. But how many of the people are even aware of how to do this? Right? It's probably not going to work as well. So I think a big, big impact of this second wave has been this shock to the retail borrowers, the retail household sector, the consumers. And to the extent the banks are exposed to the retail sector, the NBFCs are exposed to the retail sector. I think that's going to be a very, very high increase in NPAs going forward, uh, which is probably why RBI has also, uh, even before the second wave hit, the, the assumption was that uh, the NPAs are going to go up to 14% by September this year. My sense is it will go up by even more because of these retail defaults that we might see. Also, what has happened is, as you correctly pointed out, is that because of the second wave, we just hit us out of nowhere when we thought that we were sort of invincible. Now the uncertainty and the risk aversion has, has become really, really high. So also coupled with the fact that vaccination has been taking place at such a slow pace, we just don't know when this pandemic is going to end. You know, we see in other countries like US, UK recovering, but in India, we absolutely have no idea when the pandemic is going to end and when recovery is going to start. So in that kind of a situation, as an investor, as a firm, of course, I'm not going to do anything. I mean, forget about expanding any capacity. I'll just maintain status quo as much as possible and shore up capital and shore up cash. And as a bank, as a financial sector, as a creditor, once again, I'm, I'm even more petrified now than what I was last year. So there is no question of the bank's lending, uh, irrespective. And the irony is we are historically in a very, very low interest rate environment. The central bank has lowered the interest rate to 4%, the lowest ever. And yet, in this very low interest rate environment, we are not seeing any pickup in the credit growth because there is no credit supply and no credit demand. So basically, there is nothing that is moving in the economy right now from the financial credit perspective because of this unheightened uncertainty, heightened risk aversion, which my sense is going to continue for a while 
till we see that vaccinations have increased uh, and people are really confident about going out and about and spending without fearing mutants, variants, third, fourth, fifth wave, etc. And my sense is that's going to take a few more months, if not longer. Until then, we will just be in this status of high uncertainty, high risk aversion uh, from, from the entire financial sector, bank, NBFCs. Bond market is a different story altogether because you know, we know that RBI is a very big participant in the government bond market now. In fact, it owns 70% of the benchmark 10-year uh, government bond paper. And, and other than that, I don't think there's anything really happening. There are some large corporations issuing bonds in the bond market, but they're primarily doing it probably to just, you know, they're they are, they are issuing the bonds and using the money to repay the bank loans because they want to deleverage uh, on, on the bank credit side. So that's the only movement that is really happening in the bond market. So there is there is a sort of a stalemate. There is a stagnation. And while we we may see a little bit of revival of pent-up demand as, as local lockdowns get restricted, but the general uncertainty and risk aversion is probably not going to go away for quite some time. Yeah, well, uh, I remember reading this paper that you co-authored with Harshwardhan on comparing the 90s banking crisis with the one that we were in before the pandemic hit. And interesting point you made is in the 90s crisis, we could actually grow out of the crisis, right? Because if the balance sheet is growing rapidly, then the the, the numbers of bad loans, the percentage looks, start looking smaller and you can absorb the losses over time. But if the growth actually slows down and we are in this what you call stagnation relatively, then the, the same NPAs will start ballooning up as a percentage of the balance sheet and you'll have difficulty absorbing the losses, right? And... Uh, one thing that we are seeing in this time is also that small town and rural areas are very badly affected. Now, uh, moving on to what can be done uh, to you know, address some of these problems. So policy instruments that are available with us. So in this budget, we saw that only about 20,000 crore rupees were uh, earmarked for bank recapitalization. Even if you take the scenarios that RBI had come up, put out before the second wave hit, it seemed like anywhere between 13.5 to 15% NPAs were expected by September. Possibly because of second wave, the uh, NPAs may be larger. And uh, then how is this going to be resolved? resolved? So uh, somebody has to absorb the losses. It has to come from the firm capital. And if RBA's government has only provided 20,000 crore rupees, set up an asset reconstruction company, which has, which has almost very little capital right now, what can be done? Right. Um, and and I, I wish I really had a good answer for this because you know, I guess we're all struggling to figure this out. But but you made some very important points. So one is, uh, is that on the recapitalization, so of course, we know that the banks, even if they have not been lending a lot to the industry, to the corporate sector, but still they are going to face very high NPAs, most likely from the retail sector. Right? So there's no running away from it. That NPAs will skyrocket significantly. And my sense is much more than the 15% that RBI has uh, has estimated. And 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 the and the recapitalization amount announced in the budget is 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 just like a droplet in in the ocean, right? It's not going to do anything. So my sense is what probably is going to happen uh, is that as we have seen in India time and time again, is there will be delays and there will be hiding of the bad news under under the carpet and there will be delays in disclosure of NPAs uh, and there will probably be more restructuring schemes that will be offered simply because. The banks are no longer in a position to disclose the bad news and the NPAs because they don't have the capital. You know, I mean, we have already gone through that saga once. When AQR was done, on one hand, it was good. The banks were stripped naked and all the bad news came up. But then what? There was no capital. 
So when you can't recapitalize the banks and all the bad news is out there, then what's the next step? Banks are obviously going to start incurring losses. So now, once again, we find ourselves in a similar situation. And I think this, my sense is that we will, we will not disclose NPAs or the defaults in the next one year or so. We will not see any resolution. We will sort of try to delay it as much as we can till the growth starts recovering a little bit. And then the banks can sort of, as, as, I, as we're mentioning, not as much as, of course, in the 2000s, but start growing a little bit out of the crisis. If there is a little bit of recovery in the credit demand, credit growth, then the NPA problem can start looking less severe. So my sense is things will sort of be kept under the rug for a while, simply because the government is not committing the capital that is required, given that 70% of the banks are owned by the government. Also, mind you, that much of the problems is also in the private sector banks this time, because they were exposed, they have been significantly exposed to the retail sector. The good news there is that the private sector banks are doing relatively well on capital adequacy. And they are able to raise capital in the market. So I think they are not going to be, fa be facing as much of a problem. But for the other banks who don't have access to the market capital as much, I think things will sort of be not revealed or not disclosed because you just can't afford to keep showing losses quarter after quarter. Now, that is, I think, what's going to happen on the banking front. Uh, but other than that, I think, see, in the recovery of growth, of course, is critical, right? I mean, exactly as you said, what we had analyzed last time is, the only way out of the crisis right now is to grow out of the crisis. There is no other solution right now. Now, how do you grow out of a crisis when none of the policy measures is working? The monetary policy is not working at all. As I said, despite interest rates being so low, banks don't want to lend, and there is no demand for credit. So that has sort of become redundant. We don't really have a fiscal policy because the government is not really announcing the kind of fiscal stimulus that is needed to revive growth. Also because the government itself is struggling with a very high fiscal deficit. Now, the debt-to-GDP ratio is the highest ever. It's projected to be 90% exactly. And it's very, very costly for an emerging country like India to service a debt-to-GDP ratio of 90%. And it's basically like a several years of, of pressure that we are going to be in. So the government is also not able to announce a big fiscal stimulus. And the only way to repair damaged household balance sheets and to start creating demand and jobs right now is fiscal stimulus, which is what most other developed countries have done. There is no other way that, that we can go out of it. Exports are doing better now slightly because the Western economies are recovering, but it's a very, very small percentage end of the day. I mean, it will play some role, but it's not adequate enough to pull the whole economy out of this slump. So I think it's just going to be a very long, slow winter. And you know, the, the government has announced some capital expenditure in the budget. The hope is that that will crowd in private investment to some extent. Uh, maybe that will generate a little bit of credit demand, a little bit of credit growth. So it's, we are going to go in stop and starts. Uh, that's my sense. It's not going to be like a you know bumper recovery or whatever the, the analysts have been saying, a V-shape, W-shape. I don't really think we are going to have anything like that because this year, you know, assuming that we, we, we were growing at minus 10% last year, you know, I don't really trust the GDP numbers, but roughly if we were growing by minus 10% last year and this year, even if we grow at 10%, we have still lost two years of growth. You know, that's not really recovery because we're still not at the pre-pandemic level. And then to do better than that, you know, there has to be a lot of impetus from, from demand, either investment or exports or government demand altogether. And that, I just don't see how private sector investment demand is going to recover when the situation is, is, is so bleak with the risk aversion, uncertainty, et cetera. Exports, as I said, will help to some extent. Uh, there may be some revival of pent-up demand of consumers, but everything depends upon third, fourth, fifth wave. So 
Ideally, the government should have been the most important player to push fiscal stimulus, start generating demand, infrastructure demand, which in turn would have trickle-down effects on the private sector, on credit growth, on the financial sector. But in absence of that, I think we'll just be in this, uh, as I said, in this slow, long winter for a while. And of course, the most critical element in all of this is vaccination. I mean, the, the longer we will take to vaccinate a majority of the population, the, the longer it will take for the economy to recover, for the financial sector to recover. So everything gets stretched out in the horizon. So now we are thinking 2022, even beyond that, I, I think it is going to take a very, very long time uh, to recover. So as I said, there is no easy answer to the question of, of what can be done, because what what should be done is something that is not getting done, which is fiscal stimulus. Uh, the other policies are not effective. Um, the government has announced, I mean, of course, there are reforms, but now is not really a time. I know many people say crisis is a good time to do reforms. I just don't think this crisis is ideal for doing reforms because everybody's in such a risk-averse, uncertain mode. You don't want to keep shocking the system anymore by announcing more and more reforms right now. So, I mean, you know, for example, the government announced privatization, two banks privatization in the budget. But we all know that it's not going to happen tomorrow, right? It's going to take a very long time for that to happen. I mean, we're still waiting for LIC to go public. That hasn't happened. Banking regulation fixes. Again, we have been talking for a while. Improved governance of PSU banks. These are all things that need to be done. Uh, putting IBC back into action properly. We all know the laundry list, but it, it, it doesn't get done when, when you are struggling to deal with, with this uh, very big crisis. Yeah, but if you do reforms in this time, maybe they'll serve you better later. But you can get them done now. But on this fiscal fiscal issue, I mean, I think the government strategy was to uh, focus on recovery this year because last year's bulk of the fiscal expansion we saw last year was on revenue expenditure, so focus was on relief. This year, the expansion was primarily towards capital expenditure, at least in the budget. And if this second wave hadn't happened, perhaps we would have seen at least some part of that strategy being implemented and it would have perhaps provided a stimulus to the economy. But, uh, and if it, it had crowded in some private investment, it could have helped the economy recover uh, more rapidly. But uh, depending on how quickly we can, I mean, vaccinate, as you said, how quickly we can get the private activities going, market activities going, possibly we could see a different scenario. If, if the recovery is a little faster, and we are able to get out of this uh, current uncertainty sooner, maybe the options will expand. But you're right that in the short term, at least, there are no easy options or good options that would perhaps solve this. Also, one thing, Suyash, just very briefly, I'll just mention one point. You know, for, for private investment, and we, we all understand that the key to recovery is private investment recovery, right? That revival has to happen. And the very important point of, you know, what, what, John Maynard Keynes talked about animal spirits. A very important point about private investment is confidence and trust and faith in the system. You know, if that confidence gets shaken, then no matter what you are doing in terms of policy, you will just not get that private investment back on the table. And that confidence, I think, has gotten shaken massively in the second wave because of the way the whole thing happened and panned out, right? And in order to, it's very important now to restore the confidence of the private sector, their confidence in the system, in the government, in the administration, et cetera. That, along with the fact that there has to be revival of demand in and of itself, that combination is the only way that I think the private sector investment is going to pick up. And that probably is not going to happen anytime soon. So 
I mean, I think the government now, I mean, there is a school of thought I know, and I don't completely disagree with them anymore, that we probably just have to ignore the fiscal deficit right now because the situation is so dire. I mean, if nothing, the government just needs to prioritize vaccination and get that done. And then, you know, maybe ignore the fiscal deficit for the next one or two years. I mean, I would never say this last year, but this year the situation is really so severe that the government probably needs to spend much more, both to provide relief and to do CapEx expenditure. Uh, because otherwise we are looking at maybe five to 10 years of repercussions of this crisis, which will be very costly for, for the country. Yeah, as long as the uh, stimulus, uh, I mean, fiscal expenditure is on uh, items that have a good fiscal multiplier, high fiscal multiplier, it, it can be justified. You know, it may not lead to a downgrade or, or anything like that. So uh, I think those options should be obviously open and it, it depends on how the government is able to implement the strategy. Because if it again goes towards more of short-termism, then it may not actually, it may lead us to another crisis. Because if there's a downgrade, it, it will be worse. So I just have one final question. It's a question which is not directly related to this topic. But I, if you were to suggest a book uh, that anyone should read about financial markets, about financial markets in crisis, what would be that one book you would suggest? Um, about financial markets and crisis, uh, well, there are quite a few. And um, what comes to mind is, so in, in the Indian context, uh, you know, there is this very comprehensive book written by Tamal Bandhapadhyay. You know, he writes a lot on the banking sector. And he last year released a book called The Pandemonium, which is basically describing uh, very comprehensively and nicely describing the banking sector, the NBFC problem, the bond market problem, uh, you know, all of it. So I think that is a very recent and relevant description. So that could, that could be a very good read. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, there are also books that have been written by, we have had uh, three governors, and especially Viralachari and Subarao. Uh, they have written books uh, of their own, and they give a sort of a, a very uh, pertinent description of how things have been happening in the Indian economy. It's basically just to get a sense of how things have been panning out between the RBI, between the government, uh, and that is also a, a, an interesting read. Um, if, if somebody wants to get a sense of what has been happening over the last 10 years, other than uh, Tamal's book, I think, Ujamahara's book of India's lost decade. And these are all very contemporary, very relevant books, uh, which you just basically to give a sense of what's happening. Now, my really all-time favorite, and again, nothing to do with India or the current crisis, is um, Adam Tooze's book, The Crashed, which is basically describing the 2008 financial crisis. And that, I think, it's a very, very nice in-depth insights about how things can go so wrong in a financial sector, even one which is so well-developed and liquid and sophisticated. So that, I think, I would strongly recommend for anybody who's interested to understand. And uh, I'll stop at that. I could go on. There's a long list. But uh, some contemporary ones to understand Indian financial sector, and then this one book on the 2008 global financial crisis, uh, which I think I really enjoyed reading. Thank you. Thank you, Rajeshwari, for those uh, excellent recommendations. I've read most of these books and they are very good, I must say. Uh, thank you for taking time to talk to us today. Uh, thank you for sharing these insights. This gives us a very interesting, comprehensive perspective, albeit a little bleak, but such are the times <laughs> we live in. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. To make sure you don't miss it, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
To learn more about our research and team, you can visit us at carnegieindia.org. You can also find us on social media on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you for listening. See you next time.